Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome back to Fraudology. We know that over the last several years, the use of mobile wallets has really skyrocketed. And I say that with a smile because I remember attending conferences for payments and for fraud 10 years ago. And the keynote speaker or the you know big discussion on stage with different executives in the main room was always about the wallet wars and which wallets were going to win. And that was also back when there was a wallet called Isis Pay, uh, which that didn't really age well. There's been several different types of wallets over the years, but the ones that have really taken off are the ones that are owned by the operating systems of mobile phones. So Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay as well. And I don't know if that's because they finally figured out a formula to have wallets that both consumers and companies would, merchant companies would also accept both in store and online, because that was always the challenge was getting that critical mass on both sides. That was always the challenge for previous wallets that have come and gone. Or if it's because of the timing and the pandemic. I mean, Apple Pay and Samsung Pay especially have been around since 2014 or 15, but they had really small market share until Apple Pay was able to be used on EMV terminals in stores with the NFC technology. So, you know, that was also part of the critical mass was, oh, every merchant can now accept it if they accept EMV cards. And uh, that made it a lot easier too. And then obviously contactless payments, right, either in person or online because of the pandemic. uh, And we know how Pandemic has changed almost everything in our industry from the types of fraud we see to consumer behavior to, in some cases for some companies, massive amounts of volumes that they probably wouldn't have had that growth rate otherwise. Things like food delivery and really anything that you know brings needed items or services to your doorstep. But in this case, I was going to talk about mobile wallets and specifically mobile wallet fraud. And one of the reasons why I thought that was a good topic to talk about this week is because it landed in my lap, more or less. I saw a headline for an article last week. Title of the article was Digital Wallets Exhibit Highest Increase in Fraud Among All Payment Methods. So obviously that catches my attention. And then when I was hosting one of my retailer collaboration calls last week, There was a merchant that asked a question of the group. There was some confusion within their company on who owned the liability for Apple Pay transactions, for online transactions, card not present transactions. In this case, wallet not present transactions. And then the next day, I got another question from a merchant saying, seems like you know, there's other people that don't know who takes the liability on these. And I'm thinking, well, if you're getting chargebacks, you should probably know. But we know how all that goes and how sometimes something gets lost up in payments and they're not looking at chargebacks or, you know, fraud isn't looking at it. it. Just, it really depends on how a company is structured. 
So I thought that I'd talk about digital wallets from both angles, the banking angle, as well as the merchant angle. I don't really talk about it from the consumer angle, mostly because I don't really use them. My husband does for sure. But as much as I'm in technology and love the innovation piece of technology, I'm kind of a Luddite uh, when it comes to things in my own life. I mean, I would still be writing checks if it wasn't for so much fraud. (laughs) Um, I was writing checks until a few years ago. So I don't know. I think I'm just a little old lady at heart, but I, I am very fascinated about tech and love to study it and enjoy learning about it. I just don't always uh, do it in my own life. So I don't know. That's a conundrum to figure out for another day. So I thought I'd start out by reading this article, um, parts of this article by payments.com. And if you're not familiar with payments.com, it is spelled P-Y-M-N-T-S. So payments without any vowels. And uh, I will be adding all of the links to articles that I used in today's research uh, in the show notes. So if you want to go back and read the full articles or reference them, send them to other people, that's where they'll live. So this article starts out by saying that banks in the U.S. report a rapid increase in fraud and fraud losses, highlighting the urgent need for newer and better anti-fraud technologies. The rise of digital banking and faster digital payment methods have made financial institutions, FIs for short, more vulnerable to increasingly sophisticated fraud and financial crime. Probably not telling you anything you don't already know, but maybe these stats are new to you. So according to a study, and this study was done by PYMTS, so this was a not a sponsored article, but uh, the study was sponsored. So, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. The title of it is very long, <laughs> this study. The title of the study is called Increasing Fraud Heightens Need for Newer, Better Technologies. And it's a collaboration between PYMNTS, so Payments Intelligence, and Hawk AI. I always want to give credit to that, especially because, you know, we published the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey a few months ago, and I'm still so proud of that work and just how much progress it allowed enterprise merchants to have by just being able to benchmark their basic metrics with each other. So if it was credited in an article, I would you know, hope that someone would read it on a podcast. And actually, it looks like this study has a lot of interesting information. So if you work for an FI in fraud, you may really want to download this because it has a lot. It talks about a lot of different types of fraud within FIs. I'm just going to mostly focus on digital wallets. However, here are a couple of things from a higher level. The average cost of combating fraud for FIs with assets of $5 billion or more amounts to $7.2 million, including staffing, adapted technologies, and outsourcing services. So the average FI that has more than $5 billion um, of assets or more are spending $7.2 million on, on average on fighting fraud. However, these resources have proven to be insufficient as average losses from fraud operations reached 3.8 million this year, representing a 65% increase compared to 2022. So they're spending 7.2 million to combat fraud, but they're still losing 3.8 million a year on average. And that's 65% more than banks and FIs were losing just last year. Again, probably not telling you anything that you don't already know, but if your own fraud within your bank has increased on a global scale like that, that might be a helpful statistic to share in the next uh, meeting that you have for leadership to benchmark and and explain your metrics. That as long as your fraud has not grown over 65%, your 
actually in the minority and doing better than the average. That's not it's not great news, but I think that, you know, if you're if you're keeping your fraud losses under 65% from last year, well, less than 65% of growth from last year, then, you know, it's worth at least noting to your leadership that, you know, under your strategies and under the technology and your leadership and all of that, you've been able to keep it from growing as much as it has grown for the average financial institution. So then they go into a little bit more about digital wallets. So 43% of FIs say that they have experienced a growth in fraud compared to 2022. So 43% of them, you know, have experienced growth. So that's 65% of growth just for 43% of the banks. Wow. Um, This growth applies to most of the payment methods used. And they actually break it out, which is really interesting. It would be really hard and convoluted for me to try to read all of that on a podcast. So go look up the article if you want to see that visual. But it breaks it down by mobile wallets for sure. And uh, specifically Samsung Pay, Google Pay, and Apple Pay. But also same day ACH, regular ACH, buy now, pay later, cash, uh, instant or real-time payments, uh, funds available in 30 minutes, in less than 30 minutes. PayPal, check, bank account transfer, wire, Zelle, prepaid and debit cards, credit cards and purchasing cards, cryptocurrency, and Venmo. And interestingly enough, uh, something I found interesting was that prepaid and debit card is actually slightly less of a losses this year than 2022. And credit cards are just a little bit more. So credit and debit and prepaid have all kind of stayed pretty much the same as last year. But by far, the wallets, uh, as well as same-day same, uh, same day ACH and regular ACH, have really grown over last year. And so that's really where they focus you know, most of the article. But if you're interested in knowing those changes from last year and the growth rates of those, definitely look up that article or download that, that survey or the study. I think it's always so important to soak up any kind of metrics that we can from the industry because we know that they are not always easy to get our hands on, especially when we need it. So this growth applies to most of the payment methods used and digital wallets such as Samsung Pay, Apple Pay, or Google Pay showed among the highest increases. According to the survey, around 65% of financial institutions that accept Samsung Pay experienced increased fraud relative to 2022. Both Apple Pay and Google Pay are not far behind, with 60% and 52% respectively of FIs that accept them experiencing increased fraud. So 65% of banks that are accepting Samsung Pay say, yep, we're seeing more fraud than usual. Uh, 60% are saying that for Apple Pay and 52% are saying we're seeing more fraud than we did last year on Google Pay. In relative terms, the growth in fraud related to digital wallets is incredibly high. Google Pay saw an increase of 153%. Samsung Pay saw an increase of 140%. And Apple Pay saw an increase of 81%. These are the losses that banks are claiming. These are not the losses that Card Not Present and online merchants are claiming, who also more often than not lose a lot of money to fraud on these digital wallets too. And we'll talk about the differences between those two in just a couple minutes. Uh, the other thing that they said that I thought might be worth noting is, you know, that financial institutions that currently use ML and AI technologies experienced 30% fewer transactions resulting in fraud losses compared to those that do not. 
Now, we know that the sponsor of this survey is an AI company, uh, Hawk AI. So, of course, that has to be added and that's part of it. Um, but I thought that that was you know, interesting that they at least measured that. The one footnote that I would say, and I've said this many times before, it's not just if you use a tool either internally or a third party tool that uses machine learning or artificial intelligence. It really depends on how they're used. And to be honest, there's more than one company out there saying that they have machine learning or AI that they definitely do not, which is absolutely ridiculous and very frustrating. But it's important to be asking how those technologies are being used, not just that they are being used in general, because it's just like any tool, right? It's not just it's not just if you have it or not, right? If you're building a house, it's not just, oh, do you have a hammer or not have a hammer? It's how well, how good are you with the hammer, right? How much experience do you have? How, you know, what does the finished product look like? All of those things. So just like any tool, it's important to ask a lot more questions than if they have that and if they don't. And maybe you're rolling your eyes at me right now, but there's a reason I'm saying it because not everybody does that. And uh, at least in my experience. So I did a little bit of searching around for some examples of what fraud looks like on the banking side. And I know that it can be different. Uh, and, you know, because issuing banks are, they participate in Apple Pay especially, uh, but some participate in Google Pay and Samsung Pay as well. Oftentimes issuing banks are taking on liability in card present transactions. There are some cases where they'll take liability in card not present transactions, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. But I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit to the type of fraud that's being seen, at least on the banking side. And really what it all links to is the cards that are funding the wallet. Because even though mobile wallets are technically a new payment method and a new channel, they're all being funded by credit cards. And so at the end of the day, that funding mechanism is still the same. And so the rules will still apply similarly. But also because the banks that are enabling Apple Pay, their cards to be loaded on Apple Pay, they're the issuers of those cards. They're the ones liable for that fraud if it happens in store uh, or in some cases online. So going into this, I found an article uh, from a few years ago that I believe still holds to be true. Uh, and I added a few other anecdotes that I know about too. So one expert in this article uh, was quoted as saying, in this case, fraudsters have found that some issuing banks issue cards that are easier to register with stolen identity information than others. This vulnerability is made more acute because the black market for purchasing credit cards and identity information allows fraudsters to quickly look for, purchase, and test cards and identities from any bank in the world to see which ones they can exploit and which ones they can't. So essentially, a fraudster might have an Apple device and they can load other cards on it. It's not checking to see if it's that card is registered in their name or not. And so that's usually it. But also they're getting cards issued to them by issuers that may have more lax KYC policies than others. So it may be easier to get a card issued to a stolen identity or a synthetic identity, put that within Apple Pay. And knowing that when Apple Pay is used, especially for online, there's a lot of things that are masked. So the merchant really can't do the same verification that they can do when there's a credit card purchase. So that's why they would do that rather than just getting a stolen card and going off and using that, you know, as the payment method. 
whenever there's something in between, whether it's another entity, you're paying one entity for someone else. So, you know, you're paying a delivery service for food at a restaurant or, you know, whatever that is, whenever there's another step involved. And in this case, it's using your credit card to fund a wallet transaction. There's going to be less data available. It's going to be harder to identify if the whole picture, if some of those big pieces are missing. So going on in this article, Apple Pay provides for two pathways for authorizing new cards on an Apple device, one for instant authorization and one that requires additional checks. Apple provides the same information to all issuers for risk qualification, and each issuer can interpret the data and assign a risk score on its own. So each issuer is determining the risk for themselves, which you know, I think is good in some cases, but they're also not seeing the whole picture, right? They're not seeing what risk looks like to other banks and to other issuers. They're making their own internal decisions on what risk within Apple Pay and having their cards fund a wallet looks like. Every bank or credit card issue is constantly balancing the risks of fraud with customer friction. I would say it's not just credit card issuers and banks. It's everyone within the payment life cycle is really trying to balance having as many sales as possible and the least amount of fraud as possible. And we all know that that is a balance and a pendulum that often will kind of swing one from one direction to another. It's you know, impossible to really find that perfect balance all the time. Uh, and then this expert finishes up saying every bank has a different approach to risk and are placed at different points on that spectrum. So that's really it, right? Each bank has different approaches to risk. They have different uh, types of consumers. They have different types of consumer behavior. They have different incentives, right? So they may offer more points for spending at specific MCC codes or something like that. Well, then they may see more risky transactions if it's on travel or that just every bank is different. And so it does make sense that they have their own risk profile, especially because at the end of the day, the bank is taking on the liability for a lion's share of those transactions. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So let's talk about liability for a minute. And this is something that I know has been confusing on the online merchant side, uh, especially the last couple of weeks. And I think I kind of figured out the reason for that. Well, I think there's two reasons for that. So I'm not going to shame anyone for thinking that they had zero liability. I think especially because buy now, pay later, when it was a new payment method, they most of them were offering zero fraud liability to encourage merchants to adopt their payment method. So I think that there are some people who just think, okay, new payment method equals no liability for us. Wouldn't that be nice? But no, not the case. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing before going into liability. Um, As far as fraud on the banking side, when looking into Apple Pay a little bit more, I noticed that cards can be added to Apple Pay Wallet as soon as they're approved. So long before that card is you know, sent in the mail. So a lot of times with traditional 
identity fraud. You may not catch it right away, but then if more applications come in for the same address or, you know, that are connected, you might go, oh, wait, this is actually fraud because, you know, fraudsters are greedy. And if they get one approval, they're going to want to get a lot more, especially on, you know, stolen information, synthetic IDs, etc. But in that case, when a card is being mailed to an address, A, the criminal has to have a drop address where they can pick up the card in order to use it. But B, there's like a seven, eight, nine day lag between when the card is applied for and when it's actually in the criminal's hands or in the person's hands. So the bank can make a decision to shut off the card and that person's just basically getting a piece of plastic in the mail that has no value. But when you can load a wallet with a brand new card number that was just approved, you know, 30, 60, 90 minutes ago, you no longer have that lag. And that can obviously uh, open up a lot of opportunity. Also, the criminal doesn't actually need to be receiving the card in the mail so they can have it shipped to the victim, right? If they're stealing an identity, they can, if somebody stole my identity and they wanted to open a credit card in my name and load it to Apple Pay, to an Apple Pay wallet, they could do that very easily and they could have the card sent to my house so that upon approval, it's, oh, well, yeah, I can verify that address. It goes to that person. So sure, it's good. Well, and in the meantime, you know, seven or eight, nine, 10 days later, I'm getting a card in the mail. I don't think I have an account with that bank, but already the damage has been done in my name. So that opens up a great deal amount of risk. Additionally, you can add up to 12 credit cards per Apple wallet. And I have a lot of questions about that, right? Especially around how are, you know, the cardholder name, address, email, AVS, you know, how are those things being verified? How do the banks or Apple say, wait, you have two cards that belong to John Smith. You have three cards that belong to, I was going to say Jack Johnson, but there's actually a famous Jack Johnson, Jack Jones, uh, and, you know, two cards that belong to Sarah Hansen. I'm just making up names now. Are there any checks for that? Especially since, you know, yes, the bank has visibility into their cards that you load onto your Apple Pay wallet, but they don't necessarily have visibility into other banking, other cards that are issued by other banks on that wallet. Is Apple looking at that? I'm not sure. It's an open question, but that certainly looks like something that I would want to dive into. You know, I literally read through the terms of service for Apple Pay uh, for several banks and just was looking for vulnerabilities. And those are two that came up. So it's possible that some of the banks have already have fixes for these. I'd be willing to bet with mobile wallet fraud going up by over 65% in the last year that that might not be the case. Those might be some valid loopholes. Okay, so now let's dive into liability. So I mentioned one way that there may be some confusion, right? It's a new payment method. Lately, some of the newer payment methods have just come with liability shifts baked in for card not present merchants to make it attractive for them to accept those payment methods. Here's another reason why it might be foggy to online merchants about who owns the liability. In an article in 2014, and this was right when Apple Pay was coming out, This was a quote in the article. Banks are so confident in the security of Apple Pay that they will be assuming all liability for any fraudulent purchases that may occur, 
In other words, customers and merchants will face zero liability for fraudulent transactions. So that was true for both face-to-face and in-app purchases. And they cited the touch ID fingerprint sensor, the encrypted device account number. Don't think it had facial sensors at that time yet. Uh, I mean, this was almost 10 years ago. So they were very confident when Apple Pay first came out that, oh, this is going to be really secure and we don't have to worry about fraud. So sure, we'll take the liability because it's important to us that more companies are accepting it and that more consumers are using it, getting to that critical mass when it first started, knowing that so many other wallets, I mean, at least a dozen wallet companies had failed before that point because they hadn't gotten to that critical mass. Maybe they got one, but not the other. But it kind of had to happen all at once. But a couple years later, Apple changed their mind. <laughs> and they're like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, we don't want to provide liability shift on all of these. Maybe we're not as confident as we thought we were. Those are not direct quotes. That is literally just me assuming what was said in those meetings. So now what the liability shift looks like for merchants, and this is another reason why it could have been confusing, is because they do take liability on some credit cards, on some wallet transactions that are funded by one card brand, but not the other, one major card brand and not the other. Um, So here's what it says about liability shift for merchants. Apple Pay supports a liability shift globally for all major networks. So Amex, Discover, MasterCard, except for Visa. For Visa payments, Apple Pay supports liability shift only in Europe. That would probably explain why so many merchants have even had so much fraud on Apple Pay lately that they've been added to the chargeback monitoring programs, that it's only Apple Pay transactions funded by Visa. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I might say, oh, well, if if Apple Pay or the issuing banks don't have liability on that, they may not be looking at it or scrutinizing it as much. I don't know if that's true or not. I know the outcomes, right? I know that that online merchants are seeing a significant spike in Apple Pay transactions funded by Visa. And I know that Apple Pay does not provide a liability shift to merchants on Visa transactions outside of Europe. So putting those two together, that might be what the case is, but I don't want to make any major assumptions there. And then for card present, uh, really Apple Pay is considered the same as EMB. So successfully, or, you know, EMB or 3DS really. So it's successfully authenticated using 3DS or an equivalent cryptogram such as Apple Pay or Google Pay. So those are also, you know, within the liability shift. And that's also why it explains how, why some cards are covered under liability shift. Again, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, not Visa transactions outside of Europe. Uh, And as I said, that is where all the fraud is for online merchants, at least right now. So it could be that, you know, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? Did Apple make the decision not to cover liability, fraud liability for card not present transactions made on Visa cards through their mobile wallet because they saw a large spike in fraud and and were like, whoa, we don't want to cover that or this is too difficult or, you know, whatever it is. Or was it because Apple Pay doesn't provide they don't take on the liability. Maybe they're not scrutinizing those transactions as much. I'm not sure. It could be a mixture of both. I'm not sure, but just some things to think about. But I just want to be super clear to anyone in e-commerce that's listening to this. 
You do not have a liability shift. You are liable for all transactions that are on Apple Pay Wallet funded by a Visa card. And I know that most of your PSPs uh, or your fraud providers will tell you which uh, card brand is funding that Apple Pay transaction. So you can make decisions on that. And I do know the reason why I'm really reiterating this is because some companies similar to uh, when buy now pay later was very popular and there was a liability shift there. And I know I did an episode on that a little over a year ago where merchants had made the decision not to put any buy now pay later transactions through their fraud system, you know, because they'd incur charges for that, you know, per transaction charges to run through the fraud system. And their thinking was, well, we're not liable for the chargebacks and we're sure that the buy now pay later company is running fraud checks. So why would we do it twice? But then that opened up a whole different type of fraud with whitelisting fraud and other types of things like that. So that's kind of what happened here too, is for merchants who thought, okay, all transactions that are card not present made on Apple Pay wallets, we're not liable for them. So why would we pay for our fraud provider to take a look at them and assess the risk? Especially if Apple has the liability, they probably are the ones who are running checks on it. Why should we do it twice? Well, those merchants I know that made that decision not to run uh, any Apple Pay transactions through their fraud system, uh, believing that all cards were under liability shift. And this is in North America, especially, but also LATAM and APAC anywhere outside of Europe. Well, now a lot of them are on the excessive chargeback monitoring list because their chargebacks have skyrocketed beyond the 0.9% limit for Visa. So that's really why I want to emphasize that is if you are a merchant who believed that all cards were uh, covered under the liability shift and so you weren't running your transactions through a fraud provider, highly recommend changing that as soon as you can. And this probably won't be surprising, but while we're talking about liability, consumers still have zero fraud liability. And because the funding mechanism behind Apple wallets and Apple Pay wallets are still credit cards, that still opens up a significant amount of opportunity for first party fraud or what people often call friendly fraud. So your face ID or your fingerprint ID have verified that you are the one making the purchase. You make a purchase online, you get the item, you get your credit card statement and go, oh, no, I don't want to pay for that. Or, or you know, there was something wrong with this and I didn't, I don't really feel like calling the merchant. I mean, who likes to call anyone these days? So I'm just going to call my bank and they'll give me my money back because they're so generous. Well, that will turn into a fraud chargeback more or less because of several reasons, several reasons that I have mentioned so many times when we talk about friendly fraud chargebacks, but um, just to highlight them, you know, one of them is that the fraud chargeback is the easiest one for banks to file. There's no gating factor. There's no requirement for cardholders to even say my card was out of my possession or I didn't actually make this purchase. So sometimes cardholders will call something fraud when they think that maybe the merchant did something wrong. But really what the true use case and what should really be happening for fraud reason code chargebacks is making sure that the cardholder didn't participate in the transaction. Not only were they not the ones that made the purchase, but someone in their household or that they know personally didn't make the purchase with or without their consent. So that's, you know, the biggest one. 
But it's really just because of that, the fraud reason code has become a massive catch-all. And when doing analysis with some of my clients for chargeback analysis, we'll often find, you know, depending on the type of merchant and the average order value and so many other things, we'll find that 40 to 60% of the chargebacks they're receiving with the fraud reason code are not truly fraud. We can verify that the cardholder participated in that transaction in one way or another. Sometimes it's the fact that the cardholder has used that card before multiple times and not had an issue, but they're having an issue this time and they're claiming fraud. So that has been a big challenge for merchants as well. You know, when looking at the excessive chargeback monitoring program for, you know, that are caused by Apple Pay transactions. And I'm picking on Apple Pay, but really um, I should say that Google Pay and Samsung Pay are set up very similarly. So um, I probably should have said that earlier, but uh, they're all set up very similarly, except for that Apple Pay is really uh works with the banks a lot. So banks are taking on more of a risk than Google itself or Samsung itself. But most everything else is, you know, true in that regard. So I was going to read one thing just kind of about uh, kind of the secure payments technology uh, that I mentioned earlier as far as EMV and all that. This is an article actually uh, from Square um, about the liability shift on their blog for people who use them for payment processing. And this portion says contactless payments are authenticated payments, meaning they're extremely secure and have very low fraud risk. In a contactless payment like Apple Pay, your payments details are dynamically encrypted through a technology called tokenization, which makes it near impossible for fraudsters to hack. They're also protected by Apple's fingerprint technology, Touch ID or Face ID. So even if someone were to steal your phone, they wouldn't be able to get at your mobile wallet. This is all true, except for if cards are issued in other people's names or card numbers are stolen and are one of 12 cards that can be put on each Apple Pay account. So yes, it's difficult for people to steal your actual Apple Pay wallet, but they can still steal the funding mechanism behind it. So just, you know, clarifying that from this article. Apple Pay and other contactless payments are just as secure as EMV transactions and leagues more secure than magnetic stripe transactions. That's not surprising, but take a fraction of time to process. They're also extremely convenient since they're all through your mobile device, which, and this is in the article, which is pretty much like an extra appendage these days. I'm rolling my eyes too, guys. It's okay. As EMV adoption picks up and people start to experience its lag time, contactless payment adoption will likely accelerate. And there's also this thing called COVID-19 and a pandemic that will also make it accelerate even faster. I added that part. This is a trend we've seen in countries that have adopted EMV as a standard. So in short, the liability shift can seem complicated, but doesn't need to be scary. Hopefully, you know, this is guided you, whatever, but don't need to read the rest. But that's mostly for card present merchants and really to educate, you know, small and medium businesses that use Square. I mean, I know there are several large companies that do also, but I think, you know, just reading the rest of this article, that was really who the audience was. But I thought it was interesting to know that they kind of count that as EMB, but it's processes faster. So, you know, for people that have a chip card and they're like, oh my goodness, this takes forever. And they can't tap yet because I know everywhere else in the world can tap their cards. The US, some of my cards can, some of them can't. And I know that's true for everyone. So we're still, we're still catching up slowly. I mean, regardless of what the US thinks, we are always five to 10 years behind when it comes to payments uh, than the rest of the world. At least it sure seems like that anyway. 
So just kind of summing this up, um, I did want to talk a little bit about chargebacks themselves through Apple Pay because there seems to be some discrepancy or maybe not a discrepancy, but just there seems to be a debate between different types of merchants, whether it's based on size or your MCC code or whatever that is, or your AOV, where some merchants are saying it's easier to dispute Apple Pay chargebacks. And they're also saying that they win more. And there's others that are saying that they don't. So I'll include that article in the show notes. I'll highlight just a couple things. There are conflicting reports about how chargebacks are being received through the Apple Pay platform. Some merchants are seeing lower chargeback rates on Apple Pay and greater success in the representment process. Others are finding that Apple Pay seems to attract friendly fraudsters and that chargebacks on the platform are harder to fight and win. Both perspectives may be right. There are other variables in play, such as merchant policies, industry expectations, customer attitudes. I would add on you know, the MCC code, the average order value, the size of the company, the type of customer they have, just so many different variables there. But there was a There were two studies that were quoted in this article that I thought were interesting. So one says, according to the payment processor, pay near me, which I believe is, you know, relatively small, at least if we're talking about enterprise uh, payment processing, their internal data reveals that their clients have been experiencing 25% lower chargeback rates over Apple Pay compared to traditional credit card transactions. They also noticed that when Apple Pay transactions are disputed and the merchant fights back, their win rate is quite impressively seven times higher than the typical chargeback representment. That's pretty incredible. But, you know, their analysis points to several possible explanations, and I have a couple of ideas as well. Um, Some of their uh, possible explanations are, you know, that this company acknowledges that their sample size is small and that the experience of their clients don't necessarily reflect what's going on in the wider world of payments. I also would say that they're smaller merchants, more or less uh, than enterprise, and so they're going to have different results. But also, they may not be the companies that are targeted for Apple Pay fraud right now. We know from lots of experience that the bigger the brand, the bigger the marketing budget, the you know, bigger the resale value of the items that you're selling, the bigger the target you're going to be for fraud. And if the majority of companies that, you know, this particular payment processor is looking at are smaller, lesser known companies with, you know, lesser, smaller marketing budgets, and maybe they're not known about, or maybe their products aren't really considered valuable on secondary markets, then they may not have as many chargebacks and they may have their chargebacks may be easier to win. So, you know, there's some caveats there, but I still thought that that was interesting statistics. Like I said, whenever I can find statistics about fraud or chargebacks, and as long as they make you know some credible sense, I want to share them because I do think that they hold value, uh, not only in understanding the size and scope of an issue, but to integrate into your presentations for leadership or other departments, because we need all the data we can get. We're still a relatively new industry and there's you know, so much subjective information out there and it's sensitive information for companies, whether it's a bank or an online company that's a big brand to share some of those metrics, even if anonymity is promised, even if it's a triple or quadruple blind survey like we had for the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey. Thanks to Forder, they made sure and they helped us make sure that there'd be no way to trace who filled out the survey 
with the answers. That is not the case for every survey out there, especially not every industry survey within you know the card not present space that I know of. So that was really important to us to have that so that people could really feel like, okay, we can be honest with that. So like I said, it's difficult to get any reliable metrics. So I try to share as many as I can. So then here's the contrarian statistics. And this also came from a, um, a study that was done fairly recently. So this was a 2020 survey. So I want to just make that note that there have been a lot of changes since then, but um, maybe probably not in chargebacks as much as there are in fraud, but I still think it's worth sharing. So this article gives credit to the fraud prevention company Ravlin, who has very different findings to report on the subject of Apple Pay chargeback represented. According to their 2020 survey of online merchant perspectives, just 5% of merchants claim to have the most success fighting mobile payment chargebacks, including Apple Pay. Nearly half of the merchants surveyed said that regular credit card chargebacks are the easiest to represent successfully. Merchants also reported increasing levels of all types of fraud and almost a quarter of them believe they are experiencing high levels of fraud from Apple Pay and other mobile payment platforms. So like I said, there can be a lot of reasons why those two studies are so polar opposite, but I think it's important to you know provide both sides of that to see you know where your organization fits. I can say anecdotally in speaking with you know, the large brands that I talk to on a regular basis, they are seeing a pretty steep increase in fraud chargebacks and disputes filed through Apple Pay transactions. And again, Visa transactions outside of Europe are not covered under the liability shift for Apple Pay, therefore the merchant needs to do it. And one other thing I'll note for merchants, you know, with wallet transactions in general, whether it's Google Pay, Samsung Pay, Apple Pay, or any of the other pays that came before them. Whenever there's a transaction that's done by a second party, that first party that's getting all that data is usually the one that has the most information to run the fraud checks, right? So in this case, because the issuer has the card, Apple Pay has the relationship with the wallet, they know the types of transactions this user does and everything else, as well as they're often getting the actual card number. They're getting all of this information because what's getting passed on to the merchant is often just a token. Uh, I know that there are some providers that have been able to get a little more transparency from that token. So you can at least see the bin of the card that is funding the Apple Pay transaction but that's not the case for everyone. And it can be a real challenge. I remember it was, oh my gosh, like 12 years ago now, setting up a meeting in person at a conference uh, when I worked for the trade association for about 20 of the largest online gaming companies. So some of them were consoles, some of them were online games, some of them were mobile games. I mean, lots of different types of companies, but all within the gaming space. And they were the first ones to have transactions being paid for by you know the OS payment methods. Back then, I don't think they were called Apple Pay and Google Pay, but I think it was iTunes. And I know you also could, at the time play games and pay for free to play games, uh, you know, in game currency or that type of thing. You could pay for them within um, some social media companies too. So we had a couple of separate meetings, one with the people at iTunes at the time, uh, one with, you know, people at Google, and then another one with people at the largest social media company that was able to do that. And really what was happening and the biggest challenge that, you know, these fraud leaders were having for these gaming companies 
was that they would have a, a user that you know would commit fraud on their site and they would kick them out. They would put them on their negative list, right? You know, we got too many chargebacks from you or you know, maybe it was inappropriate use of the game or, you know, talking badly, harassing people within the game, whatever it was, they would ban people from using their game. But then those same people could come in through essentially a side door through their phone, uh, through their operating system, through those rails and make transactions and everything else. And they have, they had no way at the time to be able to loop oh, that's the person who we put on our negative list because they were barely getting any information. I know that Apple and Google, especially I'm not as familiar with Samsung Pay, but I know that Apple and Google have worked hard to provide as much transparency as they feel comfortable with while also honoring privacy uh, to merchants, especially when they have the liability to say, hey, here's some information about this person. Because at first they weren't even getting email address. And so that was really why we set up the call or the meeting in person was, hey, we just want you to understand this other side. And then we'd like to understand your perspective and what do you have access to and how, you know, is there a separate API we can get so that we can get more, you know, data rich information about these transactions? Because even then the merchants were liable. They couldn't see any of the data about the transactions. They couldn't link them to any negative list before, but they were still liable for those chargebacks. And so I do think that we've come a fairly long way since then. Uh, and mobile wallets aren't going anywhere. So it's important to be running those transactions through your fraud provider for online merchants. It's important for banks to look at the loopholes on your end and you know, really look at root cause analysis and what are the behaviors, what are the fraud vectors that are causing so many losses on digital wallets and what can you do to change policies or tighten those up or implement new technology to be able to identify them before they happen. Those are really my final words. I always have fun just talking about a subject in fraud for, for almost an hour. I am such a nerd, but I appreciate all of you who appreciate that. And I look forward to speaking with you more next week. I have a really good guest on Tuesday, so make sure that you are subscribed and tune in. I'm not going to say anything more than that, but uh, I'm already had the interview and I can tell you that I think it's going to be one of the most popular. May not break Diana's record yet, but it'll come real close. All right. I look forward to speaking with you more next week. Have a great week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.